Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, here part of the Cersei Podcast Network for another conversation about school life and leadership. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by a very special guest, Dr. Gordon Wilson. Uh, Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's good to be here. Well, uh, it's great to have you. Uh, We're going to talk today a bit about uh, the natural sciences and science education, which I think is an area of great need for uh, homeschoolers and classical educators. Um, So, uh, Dr. Wilson, you are a senior fellow of natural history at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, right? Um, And and you taught at Liberty University for quite some time as well. Yeah, almost 12 years, 11 and a half years. Wonderful. So, so you've worked in science education for, for quite some time. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so tell us your story. How, how did you, first know that you wanted to to study the natural sciences uh, and, well, and to do it for a living? <laughs> yeah, uh, very early on when we were, uh, when I was growing up in Annapolis, Maryland, I, um, I was just innately fascinated with life. Uh, I remember I was either five or six and my brothers brought home a couple box turtles from the woods across the street and i was just riveted i thought this was the neatest thing in the world seeing a i I remember vaguely a crab from the chesapeake and just living things just fascinated me um when i was my mom was christmas shopping i remember seeing this this thing called the invisible man where you have this you've probably seen them those plastic human models that Mm -hmm. uh, are see-through and you see all the organs inside. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but I was, I was, uh, you know, I wanted that. It was just fascinating. So, um, pretty early on, I knew, I didn't know what the word biology was, but, uh, I, I just innately had that, that in me, you know, Mm -hmm. God put it in, planted it in me. And 
at various stages through elementary school, junior high, I went through different phases, uh, dinosaurs, uh, reptiles is my main thing, mm-hmm. still is, but uh, that that was early on. Yeah, I had a little shark phase during, um, you know, junior high, wanted to be a marine biologist for a while, but then I realized somewhere in high school, college, um, more, I think it really gelled in my mind in college that everything I uh, learned, I had a uh, insatiable desire to teach. Hmm. So I could either annoy my mom, dad, my sister <laughs> by teaching them these things, these facts that they didn't want to know, <laughs> or I could um, get paid to do that. All right. Um, so that was the choice, either get paid or annoy people. That... <laughs> or get paid to annoy people. Oh, yeah. Get right? paid to annoy people. And yeah. I, I really try not to uh, annoy people <laughs> in my uh, teaching. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, well, so it sounds like you you just had sort of a a curiosity and mm-hmm. insatiable it's, desire to know more about this. That's yeah. that's wonderful. And very early on, so I felt sorry for my fellow students who were popping from major to major. It's like I knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I was going to do it. Yeah. So I switched from biology to biology education. Um, because of that realization that I had to teach. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, with all of that background in, in science education, and let's, let's talk a little bit about that. A, a lot of our homeschoolers, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of our listeners are uh, homeschooling parents, um, classical school teachers, uh, somehow involved in classical education. Right. And... I'm speaking in big generalizations here, uh, but many classical educators are not quite sure what to do with the natural sciences, right? Um, we're right. great with literature, great with writing, history, um, you know, the classical languages, but not not so much with science. So um, starting with younger students then, um, what advice do you have, say, for homeschooling parents or teachers in in pro- who are providing that early science education? What what should they be doing? What sorts of habits should they be cultivating? Well, at the younger years, and I think this is very adaptable to a homeschool situation, and that is let them explore. If you have scruples about, you know, animals in the house, I mean, we need to just loosen up our standards and uh, really let the children enjoy nature. Many kids, you know, biologists just don't grow out of it, but many, (laughs) many many kids just love nature. They want to catch frogs, turtles, and, and I say, let them. Yeah. Because the more they actually have hands-on experience with uh, living things, plants and animals, and have the parents, even if they don't know much about it, uh, try to uh, encourage the children to look at details. Mm-hmm. You know, frog is not just a, fro- a frog. Some people just, you know, seen one frog, you've seen them all. But it's it's great to take what is local and figure out, get local field guides and start to uh, learn with your children mm-hmm. what are the, and if you don't know, if you can't and identify then 
work with your child uh, through it. And then if you have nearby colleges or universities, you know, ask, ask experts that would know or naturalist societies near you. Uh, that way you're learning with your kids. They're learning more than just it's a frog or it's a turtle or it's a lizard or it's a, you know, it's a flower. Um, explore, look at detail. And um, kids, uh, they just have a natural desire to enjoy that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that we we can squelch that desire by academic making it all sterile and academic, turn it into a list of objectives. And there's, there's nothing particularly wrong with, with that. It's just you, you don't want to squelch that innate uh, love of it. Mm-hmm. So let them explore. Let yeah. them, you know, they learn more about... Um, Raising, uh, you know, raising a bucket of tadpoles uh, into frogs, um, they learn more than if they tried to learn it in a textbook. Yeah. Now, I think that's that you grow into that. But once they have a real experiential knowledge of this stuff, they may not know the details, the academics of it. But then they've got that foundation you can build upon when they get into the older grades. Well, and, and you can start to systematize it, right? But it it's always in the context of enjoyment. And I think too often our curriculum, uh, we become curriculum Pharisees, and we the love of the love of learning is is squished, mm-hmm. and we got to be careful that we keep that love of learning alive right. and on fire. Yeah, right. If you let them pursue their curiosity, if you let them explore, then the things that you add on and you and you systematize, you know, the academic yeah. side yeah. is going to be founded on that curiosity and that that yes. love of the thing itself, right? <laughs> yes. Um, man, I, my son Asher. Uh, we have four children. Uh, our son Asher is eight, and I I think he's going to really love what you just said because he, he would spend all day long right. hunting frogs, catching right. frogs, and, watching frogs. <laughs> yeah. And you've, you've got to, you know, I understand you have to have schools, so it can't just all be a <laughs> right. rampage right. Out, out in the wilds. Um, right. But taking that knowledge and systematizing it in a way that still uh, causes delight. Right. Um, that's great. Yeah. And, and the other part of this that I, I just want to throw in that, that fascinates me about what you said, or it's an important connection is that, um, as, as parents or as teachers, when we're guiding our children or our students into systematizing that, that knowledge that they're gaining, uh, understanding what it is that they're observing, it's also helping rekindle some curiosity that a lot of us adults have lost along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's great. You know, I remember at Liberty university when I came into a new uh, unit, say fungi, and I always like to connect the, the lecture topic with their experience. Hmm. And so I said, any of you rip open a rotten log and seen white or yellow fuzz growing through it. What's really a shame, and many, many have, mm-hmm. but 
probably more haven't. And I thought, oh, what, that's a tragedy because mm-hmm. um, I can't connect the the more academic side of it to their own experience because they don't have an experience. Yeah. Um, the the only mushrooms they they've seen is in on Super Mario Brothers and um, <laughs> on right. some video. <laughs> some video game or on and pizza it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, yeah on pizza it's just okay let's at least pizza is real and and i right. can hook that i actually do hook that yeah but um anything that you can hook um experiences that you can hook to the the academic it's mm-hmm. great so so how how should science education then change or develop as as students get older um or or does it well, that's that's. I think I'd sort of run ahead. That's what I was okay. um, yeah. men- mentioning. Is that um, of the early years? It's more experiential. Yes, there's there's knowledge of more of the grammar side of the trivium, where you're learning about what's this, what's that, what's mm-hmm. this other thing. Starting to know and identify and 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 really honing those observation skills. And then as they grow older, they start to make connections and start to uh, work towards um, sort of a taxonomy saying, well, Mm -hmm. these are, um, notice that these creatures all have, um, you can either memorize that they have a backbone Mm -hmm. or you can actually, when you're holding these animals, you can, I'm not saying dissect them, but (laughs) holding these animals, you can feel their their bones and Mm -hmm. you can start to say, okay, what do all these have in common? Um, this, this, this bird and this reptile and, and they all have a skeleton, but mm-hmm. it's so much better and easier to learn that when you've actually held the creature and you felt their bones inside their flesh. And um, now this concept of vertebrate is not something I just memorize. Mm-hmm. Um, I've experienced vertebrateness so mm-hmm. to speak mm-hmm. and um uh so that's what i that's how it should shift is um taking that observational knowledge uh more grammar and then starting to tie it together um in in logical patterns mm-hmm. um and and move on towards rhetoric um so in you know applying that trivium to the sciences of, of, of taking all of these parts, learning how to systematize and, and be able to articulate the, the things that they've seen in a very coherent, rational way. You know, uh, I, on, in the sciences, the way I get students is not creative writing. I don't want them to <laughs> do creative writing. It's science. So I want them, I want it to be written well, right. but they can write, about their observations and detailed observations or life cycles and things that they've, and that means that they have to start to integrate and synthesize the mm-hmm. material, but it's all they, they've got, they've got stuff to work with because yeah. they've got all of that observational knowledge. Right. In, instead of just the textbook memorization. Yeah. Instead, yeah. Right. Right. And the kids that have really gone after it, um, well, like especially farm kids, you know, that really have experienced biology in a real tangible way, you know, they usually do better, especially if the teacher really um, hooks them. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really that you know they they're really clued uh, cued in to what you're saying, whereas a lot of other people are going, I, I don't know what you've you're talking about. Right. Um, they're like, yeah, I've seen the inside of a pig. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, those, those experiences stick with you. Yeah. And also the kids, you don't have to be a farm kid, but somebody that's been out and seen stuff and has sort mm-hmm. of a, a hobby, like they're really into this or really into that. Those people really are eager to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, some are just kind of punching the clock and saying, yeah, got to know this. And that's, that's uh, sad. So that's why everything I do as a teacher, I am just, I pour myself into it. Uh, with as much enthusiasm as I can, because there's nothing, uh, I get absolutely no satisfaction out of teaching someone who's not interested. Right. And so I do everything I can to um, foster, foster an interest. So, so letting your kids explore, cultivating that curiosity, uh, giving them as many experiences as you can, and then they can then systematize and, and, and sort out and make connections. And that's, yeah. that's great. Um, so experiences like my, <laughs> uh, my son's helping me dig a, a dead Fox out from under the barn. Uh, that's good experience. Yeah. Okay. They'll learn all sorts <laughs> about, uh, fo- some Fox anatomy. Uh, they, they'll learn about decomposers. Yes. Um, yes, they did. Yeah. <laughs> bacteria, um, not only bacteria and fungi and all of the stench that those things put out, but also, um, it, you know, part of the the decomposition is maggots and right, right. you know, and those are fly larvae. So you can even in that gross gross experience, they can learn quite a bit. Right. Well, that makes me feel a little better as a father too. You know, exposing them to that and yeah, yeah. <laughs> here, boys, grab a shovel. You know. Yep. Um, so you've done a lot of wonderful work um, in in this regard, as far as uh, uh, maybe not giving hands on experiences, but but exposing and showing this this art and beauty of observing um, creation in the world around us. And I want to talk first about the riot and the dance. That's one of the mm-hmm. projects uh, that you've done in recent years. Yeah. So um, and it's 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 gone in a lot of different directions. Uh, as far as uh, I believe there's a, there's a curriculum, a textbook. Uh, well, that came first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the textbook I wrote, um, I named it the riot and the dance. And then when my nephew, Andy Wilson, um, mm-hmm. uh, asked me to be the narrator, uh, he wanted to name it after the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it wasn't necessarily a fight in the sense that I'm the narrator and I'm the author, but, um, mm-hmm. You know, the Riot in the Dance movie is just flat entertainment. It's, it's. Yeah. I mean, you can learn from it, but it's a cinematic celebration of creation. Whereas the textbook is is curriculum. It's, mm-hmm. um, this is a high school um, or non-major college text. Mm-hmm. Um, what, tell us a little bit about how that got started and its, its purpose. I know you, you mentioned that the, the textbook is, for use in, in high school or perhaps in college, but what was, what was your aim in, in writing it? We, I've, my family and I've enjoyed the, the film, which we'll talk about in right. just a second, but what, what was the purpose of that, that whole project? The film or the, the book? The... Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> um, the book, 
real simply put is I, I wrote it because I, I really dislike textbooks. Mm-hmm. I have a love-hate with them. Mm-hmm. I like the knowledge that I can gain from them, but it's written in a sort of a dry, insipid, right. um, data dump style. And there's a certain layout of textbooks I don't like, the single space, double column, marginalia, like crazy little <laughs> insets that are colored that say, you know, all of this other stuff is boring, but let me try to interest you with this little colored box that uh, goes onto some little tangent. It's like, well, you're telling them that the other stuff's not interesting. And so one thing I didn't like is just, Besides the writing style, I didn't like the format. I, mm-hmm. I wanted my book to read like a, a novel. I mm-hmm. wanted the pictures to coincide, have very, very small captions, not have the page cluttered with mm-hmm. all sorts of bit, you know, figure and a table. And yes, I have pictures, but I didn't want it to be cluttered uh, in such a way that when the student turns the page, he didn't even know what to do. Like, what am I supposed right. to do next? Am I supposed to read? Am I supposed to read the marginalia? Am I supposed to read the figure? Am I supposed to read? It's like, it's too fragmented. Mm-hmm. And I think they do that. By, and then anyone who writes a textbook follows, you know, monkey see, monkey do, and they just keep following each other in this, I think, ugly format. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's getting more and more colorful, but it's, 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 it's um, fostering some ADD or something because... <laughs> I, let's just read. Let's read the textbook, and then I want to read in a in a person. I want to write in a personal tone so that the person reading it will go, "Oh, this person that's writing is a human being, and he's using analogies and illustrations and anecdotes, and he's he's sounding like he's just talking to me over the table." Mm-hmm. Uh, about these things, and that's how I wanted to write. So I was sort of breaking all the pedagogical rules of writing a textbook format as well as writing style. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is the answer to all of our, you know, science curriculum problem. I was just doing what, you know, based on my ability, which I'm not saying is amazing. I'm just saying I wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If no. I was a science kid. Right. And, and so that's <laughs> and, what I did. Are, is I wrote right? <laughs> it and I wanted to title it in a way that also communicates that this is not your typical right. uh, biology, you know, where it says the, the title is Essentials of Biological Sciences or something. It was like the riot in the dance. Right. Like, what's all that about? And it, right. and it sort of makes people curious. And so they have to read the introduction too. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, now, our, our family, uh, we love the film that was done, the ride in dance film. So, so first, uh, when my kids found out that I was interviewing you for the podcast today, they, they wanted to know, are there more films coming? Make sure and ask yeah. him. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so we've what done, if- um, we're finished. Uh, we've wrapped up number two. And so that, uh, I can't tell you any details other than soon. All right. It's, it's coming out. So soon. stay stay tuned. You heard it stay here. Stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. And it's right <laughs> in the dance. Well, at the end of the first one, they should did they see the teaser? They they did. I, I think they they wanted a guarantee. Yeah. Um, the, the, <laughs> the teaser is real. Right. Um, right. Yes. It's it's uh right in the dance water. 
Okay. And it's, it's uh, both fresh and salt. Okay. Well, and that's, that's good news. Thank you. Um, and, and just my personal note, I like the first one a lot. Um, I think number two is um, better. Oh, wow. I think it's, I think it's, um, I, I thought it was just flat better. Well, I can guarantee you. So, and you get paid. more experience. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm not saying everybody, but, um, you know, and I tend to be more terrestrial um, person and I, I've always been landlocked. So I do like aquatic life, but I'm just more of a, a, a land body. And, uh, and yeah. the fact that I like this one more is, says something. That does. Well, you've made four Phillips children very happy. Uh, so well, that, good. that's good. Um, and I hope that it'll be more than just this one too. Lord willing, okay. uh, as God hopefully blesses this, um, we will, you know, think, think in terms of Attenborough mm-hmm. in BBC and um, Planet Earth and Blue Planet. Uh, he's in his 90s, well into his 90s. Mm. He's at least 93. Wow. Um, and he's still going. So, I mean, Lord willing, if I'm hopefully still doing these types of films into my 90s, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's great. We look forward to that. Um, it, early in the film, you you made a, a, a statement that I, I think is really worth stopping to think about. And it's something that you've, you've hinted at already, but I, I would like to bring it up again. You mentioned that if you wanted to study Michelangelo, you would have to spend a lot of time closely observing his works, right? right. And, and you've talked about the importance of observation and exploration, but that relates particularly to our study of creation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, that um, that's something that we're, that we're sort of missing as we approach studying the natural sciences is that we, a lot of the wonder and curiosity is sort of sucked out of it because we're right. seeing this as, as, as just an academic exercise. Right. right. Um, so um, what can parents or teachers do um, to, to adjust that and, and, and uh, sort of change the expectation, if you will, uh, when it comes to uh, cultivating that wonder and curiosity? Well, I think it, it partly has to do with the book, but it really has a lot to do with how the teacher is approaching it. If mm-hmm. if the teacher is approaching it as, okay, here we go, kids, roll up your sleeves. Here's another, we've got to learn this. And uh, we've, we become slaves of curriculum. I'm all for curriculum. I wrote curriculum, but are we, you know, I, th- I think of the, the, the verse Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But I want to sub in curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> curriculum is made for man, not man for curriculum. And I think we really get it backwards. We, mm-hmm. we, we become slaves of this, 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 this inanimate um, <laughs> book yeah, yeah. that says, and we stress ourselves and we got to get through these objectives and we got to do this. And I would rather uh, have students, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with being organized, but usually curriculum is there's usually too much crammed into a certain mm-hmm. piece of time. Right. And we feel victorious when we've actually 
checked all the boxes and we've gotten through all the lessons and we've done all the labs and we've, we've done everything. Mm-hmm. And the student, our kids hate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I, have we been successful here? No, mm. but we think we've been successful because we've done all the units. Right. It's much better. Um, you'd say, well, it's be better to do both, but yeah, uh, I would rather get through 80% or 75% of it and have fostered a love and excitement. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're, if they're mesmerized, say doing a lab with a microscope and I really, really encourage, um, homeschoolers to get decent microscopes, not Campbell soup microscope, but decent microscope, you know, Campbell soup labels where you turn in this, you know, right. <laughs> get, it's like, get a decent microscope, Amscope, really good. A lot of bang for the buck, uh, good optics, solid scopes. But as they're looking at say an amoeba and they're mesmerized or a paramecium and they're mesmerized, and they're just really enjoying the experience. And we go, okay, enough. We've finished that. You've drawn your little picture. Now we have to go do mm-hmm. all these other things. Mm-hmm. So we've, um, I'd rather have them sit longer at one thing that they're really enjoying than to mm-hmm. push them on and get everything done and be, you know, slogging. Right. Um, right. But there's a balance. I mean, I, I'm all for discipline too, but we've got to have that balance of not being a slave to the curriculum. Yeah. You're you're the master of the curriculum, right? And I, I think a lot of teachers tend to to err on the side of we want to get through the book. Yeah, and that's that's, yeah. and I've done that. I think yeah. we've all done that. Yeah. So so many teachers use that expression of uh, their goal for the years. We we need to get through the book, as yeah. if as if um, the science classes like a root canal you know yeah like, or get through the book like we are appeasing this unnamed unknown god right. called yeah. curriculum and we got to get through and do all of our uh, obeisance right by getting right. through it and um we have haggard burnt out kids that yeah yeah hate and all of this is glorious the 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 god's creation is glorious Mm-hmm. And every aspect of it should be pointing us to his glory, but we often separate it, divorce it from him and his creative work. When we're looking at whatever it is, a, a mammal or a bird or a plant or a reptile, we need to realize that those are architect, that that is an architectural design. Mm-hmm. All of it is an architectural design that came from the mind of God. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we sort of say, oh, this is biology, as if biology is a, uh, this, this separate thing that is not an extension of God's creativity. Right. Um, we sort of know it up here, but we don't really think it. Right. I, I think if, if that were really, uh, rooted in us, uh, we would probably take a lot more seriously, uh, the responsibility we have in, in keeping mm-hmm. that, that wonder, that, uh, curiosity and love of, yeah. of observing the things around us. That's great. Um, so I'd encourage, um, parents to just, if anything, if they're haggard, they're, the kids are going to be haggard. Sure. So 
um, to really, if they have to, weed things down and make it, uh, learn it in hopefully a way that uh, invokes joy in them. And that will be, I think, joy in knowledge will often be, um, it's contagious. Mm-hmm. Not always, but it, it, if, if the teacher's gifted at it, it'll be contagious. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to talk about one other uh, project that you've, that you've put out just recently. Um, there's a book entitled A Different Shade of Green, which was published earlier this year. Um, yeah, in that, September, in, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so really recent. Um, in that work, you, you address some of the extreme reactions and tendencies surrounding environmentalism and, and care of the environment. Um, now, this is, a, this is an issue that tends to invite a lot of extreme responses, and right. that's another part of the book that you address. So what are some of the approaches that you've seen when it comes to um, how we should treat the environment and, and interact with, with the creation itself? Well, I, I talk about this right off the bat in the book of the various the, the spectrum of views um, that Christians have, ranging from real anti-environmental, because we associate uh, any kind of environmental issue with leftist, extreme liberals, mm-hmm. and their, their um, wrong-headed agenda. Mm-hmm. And so we just toss the baby out of the bathwater. And so there's that kind of um, revolt in many Christians. And then there's others that have sort of um, drunk the Kool-Aid of the environmental agenda. Mm -hmm. And both extremes are wrong-headed. And so I I talk about that and I um, address that, I think, fairly well. Um, The environment, we often... Uh, think, well, the environment belongs to environmentalists. But if we just change the word and call it creation, it all of a sudden changes our view of it. Wait, oh, is environment separate than creation? No. Um, Well, environment is part of creation. It's a subset of creation that we're interacting with. And we need to realize, if we need to rename it just so we can change our attitude towards it, (laughs) Because we think the environment is just this realm of environmentalists. And right. we need to say, the right. earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Mm-hmm. And um, he's given us dominion. So um, I try to um, steer a course, uh, navigate these troubled waters, very controversial waters, mm-hmm. in a way that is just, I'm trying to be as biblical as possible without right. falling off of either side of the boat. Right. <laughs> right. Excuse me. So those are the the two often the people that are interested in environmental that are Christians in, interested in environmental issues have have too often adopted um, the view of secularists. Mm-hmm. You know, they they become either global warming alarmists or they um, climate change is a, a big problem, and mm-hmm. they all sorts of imbalances happen both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's always shocking to me how, how much a thing has changed when it becomes an ism, 
Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and environmentalism is, is no exception. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you, why do you think Christians have had such a difficult time finding, finding our place in, in the conversation about the environment? Well, we want to set up the antithesis and because the environmentalists, which don't have, they don't have a Christian biblical worldview. They are, leading the charge, and maybe they have valid concerns. Usually they're exaggerated. Sometimes they have concerns, and they're calling it a crisis when it's not a crisis. And so we see their overreactions and their their, their zeal, and it's all founded on a, a non-Christian foundation. And so we, we, we say, I don't want to be at all associated with that. And right. so we take a sort of a very contrary position and we need to realize, Hey, um, if we don't like how they're doing it, then we should be, we shouldn't just be reactionary cranks. We should be figuring out what our God given role is in mm-hmm. caring for our, the creation. Now I, I'm not a big, political monger. I'm not, um, I'm not even a political animal in any sense. So I have no interest in imposing, uh, you know, having Christians set up environmental rigs and, and, and right. imposing it on everybody. Um, the book, the flavor of the book is more grassroots, not political. Yeah. yeah. And I, I want um, uh, people to be, you know, this ties back into riot and dance. I want people to first uh, see see the creative aspects of God, love his creation, love God, love his creation, and mm-hmm. be leaders in this area that are and is saturated with a biblical view, not that we are uh, that man is a a parasite or a virus on the cre- creation. We are to rule it. We are to rule it well. We are to be one thing that I, you know, usually the word we bandy about in, 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 you know, when Christians become concerned for the environment, we usually word, usually use the word stewardship. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I um, explain that I, I don't use that word because mm-hmm. it's not in the Bible. The, the word is dominion. It's stronger. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that good dominion will look a lot like good stewardship. Mm-hmm. But the difference is that um, dominion is sovereign rule. Mm-hmm. Stewardship is something where we're it's on loan and we're taking care of something for somebody else. And to some extent, we say, yeah, it's everything belongs to God. But in another sense, God sort of signs the title over to us in Genesis 1. I mean, he gives sovereign rule. We can either rule badly or rule well. And so mm. we need to first love God. And I'm not saying, okay, let's let's be activists. And I, I don't do that. I want people to love God, love his creation, and then exercise the principles that I lay out in the book at the level of their influence, their sphere sovereignty. I don't want them to, you know, start agitating for change and become... <laughs> Right. activists. Right. That's just not, right. that's not my style. I want yeah. it to be grassroots. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's a good way to fall back into one of the extremes that you talk about earlier in the book, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, you you address a lot of important issues in the book related to the the environment, um, creation itself and our view of that, uh, food, caring for animals and more. There's a lot of stuff in the book. So that mm-hmm. kind of a encouragement for people to go out and 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 find it. Um, but there's a chapter later in the book entitled Christianity is the solution, not the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my opinion, I think this is one of the most, this is one of the most important sections of the book. Um, so um, for our last question today is um, why have some blamed Christianity for environmental problems or what they perceive as environmental problems? And then why do you argue that Christianity is actually the solution? The basically um, I sort of go back to this article written way back, I forget the exact date, uh, Lynn White wrote a book um, uh, about the ecological crisis. Mm-hmm. It was probably back in the 60s. And it it basically lays a lot of the blame on a Christian view of the world. And I think um, basically he, he makes a, uh, he credits Christianity. And I think this is a, true credit with science and technology. I think that's clear. I, I, I write that Nancy Percy really documents that well in Soul of Science, where um, we have that, that science and technology arose and grew out of the rich soil of, the, of a Christian biblical worldview. Now, he basically said, because we the Christian worldview generated this and because our, our now our um, overbearing rule on the environment has caused so many ecological disasters um, back in the old, before the Christian worldview was there, everybody was sort of animistic and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you if you did something that disturbed the environment, you had to appease the God of the earth or God of the trees or whatever, some mm-hmm. sort of uh, oblation. Now, uh, he basically says that a, a Christian worldview, you can have this, uh, this uh, mood of indifference towards the creation. And that's where I think he, he um, makes an illogical step. Just because we generated science and technology does not mean that uh, it will be used in a Christian way. Mm-hmm. Uh, science and technology is a tool, and it can be uh, used well or it can be used badly. If you put it all of this great power in the hands of greedy people, mm-hmm. they can use that power to do a lot of damage, to maximize mm-hmm. profits. Um, so um, I basically go against his thesis by saying that Christ- greed is not Christian. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're using tools, like Christians use the internet, um, we're using the internet right now. Um, and it, But the internet can be used for great evil too. Mm-hmm. It can be used for great good, it can be used for great evil. Right. So that's basically why I think Christianity has been blamed. And I think that blame is um, 
just wrong headed. I think it's false. But I also uh, think that we need to get back in the, the driver's seat and start exercising godly dominion. We've just too often said they're doing it wrong. They're so bad. The secularists are doing it wrong. But they've just basically, we've abdicated mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. our global responsibility. And the secularists have, you know, no one was sitting in the driver's seat there. Right. <laughs> and so they right. just jumped in. And yeah. um, the, the car's running. There's just no driver, right? Yeah. Right. And they've jumped in and we, we get mad at how they're doing it. But we, if we want to do it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we have to rethink the issue, think it through in a biblical way, and then um, start. Um, I say the solution is the gospel, because once you've reconciled yourself to God, um, again, I'm steering away from activism. I want people to be reconciled to God. And as they're reconciled to God, a lot of other dislocations will be healed, as Francis Schaeffer says in his uh, book, Pollution and the Death of Man. Um, They will be healed, not just uh, our reconciliation to God, but our reconciliation to our fellow man, that, you know, that starts to be healed. And then our relationship to nature. Um, we, We need to be balanced people. There's so many great Psalms. Um, I just, I, I talk about Psalm 104 as being a really good picture of um, how God views the, in the creation. And I think we need to pattern our view of creation off of, mm-hmm. of that Psalm. Well, Dr. Wilson, I've, I hate that we're out of time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, well, good. And it's, uh, it, I it's, have too. it's encouraging to me as a, as a father to homeschoolers and as a classical educator myself. So thank you for, for taking the time to join us, uh, for our listeners, make sure and, and check out the ride in the dance, uh, the, the textbook, uh, the film and stay tuned for, um, hopefully very soon. Uh, volume two, uh, the second film, um, and make sure to check out a different shade of green, uh, also by Gordon Wilson, just released a couple of months ago, um, wonderful book about, uh, a, a biblical approach to, uh, Christians responsibility to the environment, to creation. Mm. So, um, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's been great to talk to you. Well, uh, that concludes this episode. So uh, I'm your host, Brian Phillips, uh, signing off for now. Thank you for listening to The Commons. We hope you'll join us again very soon. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.